Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 27th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, good to have y'all both on in this holiday season, the show between Christmas and New Year's Day. In about 20 minutes, we expect to have back on the show for multiple times now, um, Democratic political media consultant John Rowley out of Tennessee. also works a lot in Ohio. He may work some other places. Um, right off, if you heard me laugh just a little bit, um, when I was pulling Catherine on, um, I did not do it I, for some reason Catherine dropped off the board we got her back on in time and i just want her to know i didn't do it i don't know what happened <laughs> well um i think it was my i think it was my mistake i apologize <laughs> no matter i was just so worried i was like i don't know i want you to think i didn't do it <laughs> well let's um let's get into some issues and right off the bat um I guess last week, I think we may have discussed it a little bit, but a lot of the action happened during the week before Christmas. Um, the COVID relief bill passed. Both the Republican-led Senate, the Democratic-led House came together, put together a plan. I don't think either party's probably a perfectly happy with everything, but they got a plan passed. And apparently it's going to go nowhere because Donald Trump decided since he wasn't involved in everything that he's not going to put his name to it. But not only that, he's not going to put his veto to it either. So it sits in limbo for that pocket veto period. Um, There's also some other um, budgets that haven't been passed, the defense – I'm sorry, they've been passed by the House and Senate, the defense budget, and I believe the general budget, which keeps the the government functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, Tim – did I get it right? There's three separate spending bills that the House and Senate have come together on, and Donald Trump is um, threatening to veto or pocket veto, which may actually be worse um, for these bills. Yeah, the COVID relief bill and the omnibus spending bill are both at Mar-a-Lago. They were flown down there after they were passed the other day, and his staff went ahead We now know and set up the ballroom with his desk, his pens that he always uses, everything ready to go for a 7 p.m. signing ceremony. And right at the last minute, they were told that the president would not be signing the bill. He had changed his mind. Uh, And with it comes a major problem if he decides to just sit on it and not signing at all because, you know, the law says that this would go over into the next Congress. They would then have to start all over. They couldn't deal with this bill anymore, and who knows, Trump might do the same thing again. So uh, it's... uh, it's, it's it's not a good thing, and especially with, with everything else that's going on, and millions of people uh, already have, have lost uh, benefits, and, and on the 31st, it's, it's really going to get sad when uh, that moratorium, you know, on, on rents and stuff like that runs out, and some more benefits are out, so people are going to be without money and out on the street. And uh, yes, the well, president is playing golf, you know. Yeah, and um, Catherine, when Tim mentioned the um, flying the bill to Mar-a-Lago, I could just see the old Schoolhouse Rock, the little bill that would sing about Capitol Hill. And, you know, you want to add this line about how it flies to Mar-a-Lago and um, goes to the country club to get signed. But uh, and it sounds like we won't be getting that um, ceremony, will we? Doesn't sound like it just shocking this this president 
just shocking. No sympathy or empathy for all the people who are struggling and suffering. Uh, it's it's shameful. Yeah, um, Tim, you made an interesting point when you said that this, you know, this is this Congress. The new Congress gets sworn on. Is it January sixth, uh, along when the um, uh, presidential vote gets certified by the House, Senate, and Senate? Is well, I would, I would Congress think, I would think in? the new Congress would be sworn in on the fourth, wouldn't it? That'd be the first. Maybe the fourth day I, of the year. Everybody just keeps mentioning the sixth, and so I didn't know if that was some. Golly, date, if, 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 if they've got. If, if if Pence has got to swear all of them in on the six, and then uh, preside over, uh, you know that joint session to boot, he's he's going to have himself quite a long day. I couldn't imagine doing all of that at, at one time. I tell you something else about this bill. You know, Mnuchin negotiated this bill. Trump's guy, and. He he just got cut off at the kneecap. So Trump goes to screaming two thousand dollar checks to everybody instead of six hundred. Why didn't he do that months ago when the Democrats were saying the same thing? And tomorrow, tomorrow, guys, they are going to I suppose go back into session and pass that. Standalone bill for two thousand dollar checks. What's Trump going to do about that, David? I don't know, and um, you know maybe that's why Mike Pence has to get all the rest at his um, Vail, Colorado ski vacation. Um, <laughs> you know he had the other vacation just a few weeks ago to um, Sanibel Island. Now he's going to um, Colorado. I just had no idea. Um, you know, Mike Pence was such a world traveler. He may just be writing for Condé Nast uh, Traveler, um, you know, after retirement here in a few weeks. Um, mm-hmm. He's such a, you know, mover and shaker. Um, but now talking, but I wanted to get back into this point about the Congresses and, I mean, you know, changing members. I would think that the new makeup of the Senate, that you probably are going to have. Um, a Senate that's going to be just as easy or maybe even a little bit easier to pass a new um, bill, you're going to lose Doug Jones and get Tommy Tuberville, so that's going to be more friction and probably passing this. But you're going to add, you know, um, senators from Colorado and Arizona that are going to be easier to deal with. Um, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, in that period right before they um, face the voters, which might be two days, um, that's going to be a calculus for them trying to think about. In particular, there's election day voters, not voters that might have already voted. Um, and so they got to look at that calculus. But I think the Senate side doesn't change a lot. The House side, you're getting people on, in both parties that are going to be more to the extremes of the party. I mean, you're replacing Tom Graves with Marjorie Green. You're replacing a congressman out in um, Colorado with Lauren Boebert. You're replacing um, – I forgot his name. I didn't even know, hardly know the guy existed, the guy from New York that's now replaced by Jamal Bowman. You've got a congressman in Missouri that was probably a little more to the you know uh, middle than now Cory Bush. So if you add these members – on the extremes that are more likely to to vote no on something just on principle, um, could you possibly now have a harder time passing something through the House one way or the other? It's not that all four of those people I mentioned are all going to vote no, but if you go one way or the other, are they going to go no? Or possibly say, because mm-hmm. this feels too bipartisan, I don't like it, and they all four vote no. I mean, and well, just well, adding well, that well. to some other folks. The, the the problem is not that, it, 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 that they're going to vote up or down. The problem is they're going to have to start this process from the get-go again. They're going to have to scrap what they've done and just totally start over. So who knows what a finished bill will look like or if they'll even get a bill. Yeah, now, what should they do? Yeah. yeah, and people are going to lose their, you know, the the rent protections go away in some places and different things. Now, now, Catherine, Tim mentioned the two thousand dollar payment. Um, it, the bill that they passed is six hundred dollars. 
Um, Trump said he won 2,000. Interestingly, um, like here in Georgia, immediately that day, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff put out a press release saying, we agree with Donald Trump. We want uh, to have $2,000 payments um, in the bill. Um, I think that's a, it's a complicated discussion because, you know, like for me, if you give me $600, i will put it in the bank. If you give me $2,000, i will put it in the bank. If you don't send me anything, I can still make my mortgage payment. I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. I'm blessed, and, and I get that. And some people are in my boat. Some people, if you give them $2,000, they still can't pay all the debt that they've incurred due to um, the economic plight we've been through through most of 2020. Um, what do you think happens with this? Um, Donald Trump and many Democrats demanding $2,000 and House Republicans wanting to stick closer to the $600 line? Well, I think um, that anything is better than nothing, and money today is better than money tomorrow, right? So um, I think given the circumstances, um, I mean, I'm in the same position as you are. It's not going to really have an impact on me. I've been employed the full, the whole time during COVID, and you know, I, I'm, I'm financially secure. But I think that given all the circumstances, I would probably want move forward with the $600, knowing that there is a um, understanding. That I mean, it's been made very clear that uh, President-elect Biden is interested in increasing that number and, you know, adding to that, uh, those payments. So I think that since that was where they landed, it seems to me that the best thing to do would have been to get that done so that the $600 is out there, the, you know, budget is fine, all the everything's done so they can start once the new Congress is in, they can get another bill, try to get it out quick and increase that, those and, and, and add to those payments. And by the way, the swearing in is on Sunday, the third Sunday, the third Congress. I'm sure we'll get a tweet from Marjorie green, um, you know, protesting that too. Like we got the last time they tried to handle, do something on a Sunday, um, well, you know, Catherine, you're right. If you need the money to pay a bill, you need the money today. Now, of course, if you're going to just save the money, then you can take it later, and especially if it's more money for waiting, the old marshmallow test. But now there's another half of this. I know that for a lot of folks, they're looking at, I put off rent payments, I put off my power bill, I put off the car payment, I got a title palm loan, unfortunately, for a lot of folks, probably you had to deal with things like that payday loan systems. They got to have that money to pay that off. Um, but for other folks, I know the theory is it's a stimulus check and therefore you'll take the money and go spend it and that will juice up the economy. Now you get into the 600 to the 2000 and then I think you also have to ask is the is the $600 right now right after Christmas when people might have incurred debt and they're just paying off debt? Is that going to help the economy stimulate, or would you be better waiting a little bit longer until maybe the vaccine gets out there longer and people have not just gotten everything on their Santa list? Um, and it's more of a stimulus effect, Tim. Now, we're talking some deep you know, economics here, deeper economics than we normally yeah, go. And, and this, this is far, far, far removed now from from even talking about a stimulus. Don't forget, yeah. there, there's not one bill sitting down there on Trump's desk. There's two. One of them is the omnibus spending bill. If that isn't signed, the government's going to have to shut down. Oh, won't that be great? And all the things that it does. And we're, we're talking about people have already lost their unemployment uh, extensions, that $300 extension everybody was getting. That's gone. And and we're talking about millions of people maybe at one time being turned out in the street with nowhere to live, yeah. no money. Um, the, 
this man is turning the transition into uh, a disaster, and and it's almost yeah. like he's doing it on purpose so he can see how bad off he can lead things for for his successor who dared to defeat him. What else are we to think here? Man, there's people out there that's suffering, and this is really going to get bad here. Uh, if, if he if, Just sign the things, you know. We can negotiate bigger checks for people and stuff like that. They're going to vote on that tomorrow. Sign the stupid bills. Good Lord. Yeah, I mean, I think let's segue into that second bill, the one that keeps the government open. And a lot of people actually are employed by the government. Millions of people, uh, in one form or fashion, their job, you know, trickles down through government spending, um, and that's going to then harm the economy in ways that are unrelated to COVID. And so you're going to then mm-hmm. put a double whammy on the economy by shutting down. For however long, and that's the thing is, ever since Newt Gingrich did this back in the 90s, Republicans always seem to lose in the court of public opinion on these things. Um, I think we're all partisans, so we may rightfully blame them, in our opinion, but for whatever reason, when the government shut down back in the 90s, uh, Newt Gingrich took the blame, and then seemingly for every shutdown we've had since then – The Republicans are on the wrong side of the polling on these issues, and I think this is one set of polling in which we're probably a little more likely to trust as opposed to horse race polling at this point. So Catherine Trump's got his legacy. He seems to have his floor of around, I don't know, 38, 40 percent, 43 on a good day. If he just completely sets the government on fire, won't sign anything, completely shuts it down, no no stimulus relief, no Department of Defense bill, nothing, can he find a new floor below, say, that 39% approval and even do further damage to his legacy, not among folks like us, but among some of his soft base? Well, I think he can <clears> – I'm not sure if he loses – um, if he goes below that, because that's, you know, his base. But I think it could have an impact on the um, polling for the Republic, for just sort of the generic Republicans. <clears throat> um, but I'm not sure. I, I mean, you know, there are some people, I've already seen memes on, you know, Facebook from conservatives who are like, well, you know, this bill has all this money for foreign governments and, you know, aid to foreign countries and blah, 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 you know, that, all that, that whole story. So um, I don't think it really probably changes his base. So I guess that's somewhere like 38, 40. Uh, But I do think it hurts. It, It could have an impact on just on the Republican party and their, um, their uh, up and down numbers. Yeah, um, it is interesting to think about where does he leave his party, you know, and his legacy. Because here's the thing: he really doesn't care about his party's legacy. Because I'm not even so sure saying his party um, is correct, because he just uses the Republican Party as for a vehicle uh, for his agenda. Um, Tim, what do you think this does to Donald Trump's, uh, you know, standing and legacy among what's left of his base? Because we know it's already pretty much gone and trashed with the other 55 percent or more of America. Yeah, I swear I believe most of those people will stick right with him. They, Mm -hmm. They have through all the craziness and stuff that he's done. And they're not going to let a little thing like a refusal to sign a couple of bills, uh, you know, with, with government pork and uh, whatever they're saying on Facebook right now. Uh, it, they're not they're not going to care about the fact that, you know, jobless benefits are gone, relief checks for millions that that were depended on, that's gone. Uh, if the government shuts down, what happens to business? And so, you know, 
they're not even thinking about that. If they've stuck with Trump this far, they're they're gonna they're gonna keep doing so. Yeah, and it seems like they will. I don't disagree with y'all there. The one thing that I do think is interesting and needs you know further analysis, maybe more historical political analysis, not you know current day. How do we function politically in February? Is remember in two thousand six. George W. Bush had stayed so popular with the Republican base from 2000 through 2006, roughly. We'll talk January because I think that's when the, uh, you know, what happened in the midterms later that year started happening. He his popularity really dropped among voters that had supported him, and then by 2008, I mean there were many. I voted for George W. Bush. I voted for George W. Bush. I'm going to vote for Barack Obama voters. I mean, they switched over because they had completely soured on what George W. Bush's, um, you know, administration had they they had done to the economy. Now, some of that was the banking industry too, um, but it, it the economy was wrecked, and so they soured on the Republicans. And I'm just wondering, at what point, or if, or and if if not, why not? Is this same thing going to happen to Donald Trump when he's mismanaged COVID and now he's, you know? Throwing the wheels off of government. Well, let's go ahead and segue over to our guest, and we want to welcome back to – I don't know how many times it's been now, but welcome back to the show, Mr. John Rowley. Welcome. Hey, team. How are we doing? Oh, doing good. Am, well, am, John, I like that uh, char- am I like that character on a sitcom that comes back, and some people are booing, and some people are laughing? And <laughs> Now, we're all cheering here, John. Yeah, I think we're all cheering. That's all I was going to say, too. Um, I think I'm a quirky neighbor or cousin of the neighbor. So, anyway, good to be with you. Yes. Well, John, um, we know that you're based in Nashville, and we booked you. We planned on talking about some Tennessee politics, some Ohio politics, a little bit about Congressman Ryan's campaign. But on Christmas morning, something happened pretty consequential in Tennessee mm-hmm. and um, in Nashville. And being a, a resident of the city, um, kind of give us your thoughts and maybe what you know. Yeah, it was um, – I mean, I'm kind of a news junkie, and so about uh, 9, 9.30, I started getting messages from people about, you know, is Nashville exploding – is Tennessee exploding? And I thought it was another COVID reference because we also had some, we were in some national news stories about <clears throat> COVID and whatnot. And after about the second or third message, I, I Googled it myself and I had even kind of been out of the loop for the few, first few hours. And there had been a, a bomb that had gone off on second Avenue in Nashville. And if you've ever been to Nashville or you just imagine what the, the, hot night spot tourist area is. I mean, it's second and Broadway is kind of the nexus. I mean, it's kind of like being at, you know, our Nashville's version of Times Square in terms of where a lot of the activity is, whether it's New Year's Eve or just going between bars and restaurants. And um, it, what uh, essentially somebody parked uh, an RV there and, uh, um, and it, it started playing some messages that it was going to detonate and declare the area in 15 minutes. And, and uh, I think there had also been a gunshot or a report of a gunshot, which brought the police to the area. And the police, uh, you know, heard the message, this recorded message that was coming from within the van about it's going to detonate. So they start clearing the area. A bunch of these police officers go into apartments and, they got out at least one family I heard with three or four kids and, and, uh, cause it's a business district, but there's condos and other things. And, uh, I don't think it was exactly 15 minutes, but the thing just essentially took out half of a city block and one of the most historic, mm-hmm. well-known areas of the city. And, um, the, uh, the, the, the RV, which was an old, you know, kind of an old RV, they, it was parked right next to AT&T uh, is based in Nashville. And I, it, it appears that it was kind of part of the tech part of AT&T. So a lot of AT&T service has been down. 911 service in about 20 counties has been down for at least a day, day and a half. And uh, this afternoon they um, 
they found some flesh and DNA of of the the guy who owned the RV. They think they confirmed the DNA, confirmed the VIN number, and then his neighbors had uh, reported that that RV had been in his yard. I'm I'm drawing a blank on his name, Anthony Warner, or something like that. He was a tech person and uh, who had just quit a local real estate company. And uh, there's some other things going around that he was a 5G conspiracy theorist or something, which I don't, I don't know that much about that or not. And obviously AT&T has 5G, but it's, uh, I mean, you know, Nashville, every city's had a rough year. I mean, every family's pretty much had a rough year, but I mean, Nashville, right as COVID hit, we had a really bad tornado right through the heart of the city. And, and, uh, so anyway, fortunately, nobody was killed. The police officers that were there were okay, except for this you know, this alleged suspect, it looks like he was killed. So some property damage. So, but it's, I don't know. I mean, Nashville is a little bit of a, uh, um, uh, I I think it probably, I don't don't know if we're quite as used to things like that happening. So I think it's, it's kind of punctured the the quaintness of uh, living here, but uh, I don't know. I guess it could be worse. It could be better. It's, you know, just an effed up way to put a capstone or an effed up year team. I mean, it's just insane. So. Yeah, I think you're right that it was fortunate because it could have been so much worse. And I think we'll know more as time goes on about this individual. And it looks like he had just, we'll just say it looks like he had all his emotional faculties at this point. Well, in 6.30 on Christmas morning, and it put warnings out so to clear the area. So obviously this person was on a mission to do something, but it wasn't to kill other yeah. people. And uh, so, but yeah, I mean, any other day, it's going to be a super busy area of people either, you know, just wrapping their night up at 6.30 in the morning or starting their business day off. So it was uh, mm. it's probably, it was, it was the day to have, you know, kind of nobody on the, streets there but yeah I've, I've walked down that street a hundred times with and without alcohol in my system and then, so it's I think that's another reason it kind of hits the psyche every person in Nashville knows exactly where that spot is and has probably been there you know walked by there or if you visited Nashville you probably if you were down on Broadway you probably walked right by that spot yeah, it's it's real interesting when you mentioned that. Um, it's like the, where I live, Rome, and where Tim grew up, Rome, Georgia, there's a broad street mm-hmm. that's an older town. It's obviously nowhere near the size of Nashville. They, there's a really mm-hmm. ornate um, walking bridge that goes across the river, in your case, Tennessee River, in our case, the Ustanala River, and then it drops you at the foot of Barron Stadium, which is a high school, college, little small stadium. They even hosted some ball games. For y'all, it drops you right at, uh, I believe, Nissan Stadium. And so it's like the people in Rome copied what Nashville has uh, best they could, you know, give them the pieces they had um, with the river and everything else. So Well, and, well, and if, if anybody's interested, they, there was a press conference this morning and there were five or six police officers who essentially were on the scene, went into these buildings, got people out. You know, a couple of them got hit with the bomb blast a little bit, knocked off their feet. And they had all five or six of them at the press conference. And, uh, you know, it's been a tough year in the law enforcement space. And it was, um, you know, a lot of people are calling them heroes, which I think that's nice. But, gosh, the humanity of these people um, were – it was really – I mean, they were all <laughs> – every one of them just moved to tears um, and moved in their camaraderie and they're, they're a diverse group of people. And it was moving. It was very moving. They let each one of them come up and talk and tell their story for four or five minutes. And I, I don't remember ever seeing anything quite like it, but it sure put a good face on the Nashville police department and, and, you know, put a, put a human face on the people who are, you know, you think of first responders, and I don't know what you think of, but these are just these are the sort of people that could be your neighbor, brother, cousin, and uh, anyway, it's it's all over the internet that press conference now. Yeah, usually you're a first responder when you have to work at 6:30 in the morning on Christmas morning, and I'm sure most of them thought it would probably be just uh, yeah. while well, if I didn't want to work that time uh, to be with their families, it would probably be calm and easy, and this was anything but. Uh, this incident. 
Well, I'm going to ask yeah. you about something totally different in one of your other places you spend a lot of time um, mm-hmm. and change it up, and that is taking you up to, um, I want to say, northeast Ohio. You can correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, up to Youngstown. And you, um, I know you did the congressional race for Tim Ryan. Did you also do the presidential race media for Tim Ryan? I, no, I wasn't. I wasn't involved. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he ended up doing much paid media in the presidential, yeah. but he he had historically not really had a media and digital consultant like what we do. So once he once it became clear he was going to get targeted in his congressional seat, and his his seat's one where it's just one of these places where the Trump vote had been growing year after year. And uh, so, yeah, we were brought in to help him in his congressional campaign, and he had some independent expenditures against him and ended up having a, you know, a, a pretty busy race. So, Yeah, well, well let's kind of get into that. Uh, Youngstown, even though it's in Ohio, not, say, West Virginia, it's very much that Rust Belt, uh, blue-collar um, area. I think I've heard Tim Ryan, when he's run for president, mention that it's uh, really uh, one of the – many unfortunately epicenters for the opioid addiction crisis and it's one of those areas that even though it's a legacy democratic area it um has moved um towards donald trump and the republicans do you think that this that tim ryan's district and of course we're going to go through redistricting but do you think that area is going to then move back if the Republicans move away from Donald Trump and have more Democratic lean, or is this just an inertia that's going to happen and it's just going to be part of the resorting of America? Well, I mean, his specific district, since Republicans just have an iron lock on the legislature, if, if it stayed the way it could, it is, it would be an interesting debate, but they will almost inevitably redraw it to make it much tougher. You know, I mean, like the, the home county Ryan's from that's that's the, the whole district's really just a classic you know it's it's probably ten to fifteen percent African American so it's a lot of working class midwestern white folks that have had ups and downs economically I mean the auto industry used to be epic there and and it's really taken a hit now interestingly I mean I think Ryan has done some things to try to seize the electric car battery and they they call the Mahoning Valley they're trying to rebrand it and they've got some good economic development to turn it into Voltage Valley from uh, Mahoning Valley so I think over the next four or five years there's going to be some uh, some great economic trajectory there but I think there's probably going to do radical uh, surgery on that district by the Republicans and so I think um, he uh, you know, he, he wants to think about whether he runs for re-election. A lot of people want him to look at the governor's race, look at the United States Senate race. Um, and, uh, um, you know, you could always move away from politics. That's always an option as well. So I think he's he's uh, he, he's got a lot of options. And I, I, I do think he's an interesting guy that I think the Democratic Party, we, we need a little bit more of his real middle American economic message that's you know grounded around education and job training and the middle class and it's a little there's a there's some great vision and policy in there but there's also some good just like you know gut level understanding of what it means to have everybody you know and grew up with you know really struggle and and feel on a human level the ups and downs of the economy i think he's one of the great economic messengers we have in the democratic party because he he kind of lives it and uh and i I think honestly when you look around the country where democrats underperformed i mean there was a study they've already done you've got you've got to remember this this is just shocking but the gideon campaign up in maine they ran something like 23,000 digital ads with all the millions and tens of millions of dollars they spent. They didn't use the word jobs once in any of the ads because you can, there's a way to sort and organize and search these (laughs) online. I mean, we're in the middle of an economic meltdown due to the pandemic. And, you know, I I don't know who ran the campaign. They may, there may be friends of mine, but that's just malpractice. And, uh, so I, I think it's a I think it's a huge delta for Democrats. It's hard to 
it's hard to do an end zone dance after this one. I mean, it's kind of like we, it's kind of like we led the whole game and, and thought we had it in the bag and then had to kick a field goal with a half a second left to win. And we, we did no, we did nowhere near, I don't see how anybody can say it was anything but a stunning disappointment to almost lose the presidency and, and do worse at the Senate congressional and state legislative level than, than almost anybody was predicting. That's that's pretty amazing what you're saying about um, that Gideon campaign in Maine because I, I can't think of an election. I haven't read about elections before I was following in which uh, jobs and the economy weren't um, one of the top, say, three issues. I mean, you're, you're all people are always thinking about employment and work. Either they, they don't have a job and they want one, or they want their kids to have a job, or they want a better job, um, a new job, a different job, and so um, that is really uh, sobering to think. Do you about. really have to be a Do you really have to be a political consulting genius to think of that one in 2020? <laughs> I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, you know, go talk to a couple of your neighbors, or I mean, just you know, talk to a couple of real humans who aren't somewhere between Manhattan and the Potomac, and it's just. I don't know. I, th- I think too often the strategy in the Democratic Party is just it becomes um, the the you know uh, a captive of a few people who poll in Washington. And I guess if there's any good news out of 2020, I mean the the deferentialness to quants around campaigns, you know, whether it's modeling people or polling people. I mean, I think those days are over, and uh, not that they still don't have an important role and. You know, I think there's a proper way to use data-driven campaigns, but we can't be we can't be we we can't uh, data is supposed to wash over you and make you sober and clear-eyed about what's going on. The last few cycles, it's made us overconfident. I mean, any great data person. They're often the Eeyore on the team. <laughs> they're, they're the one that says, "Yeah, I know, but you know." And and on a lot of the a lot of what we've seen in the last few years, and what you you observe from all of your different chairs, it's you know the, I mean the uh, irrational exuberance that are the data we're getting sometimes on the Democratic side is it's concerning. And uh, um, anyway. Yeah, well, I've taken up, I guess, more than my fair share of time. We're going to stay in Ohio with Tim, and then we'll let Catherine drop you back off at home in Tennessee. Tim? <laughs> Great. Uh, good evening, John. Uh, Tim? You know, you 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 had the presidential race up there. You you had your your race up there. You've had the, the mess with COVID up there. And yet the biggest political story in the state this year seems to be uh, compliments of a fellow by the name of Larry Householder, the uh, Speaker <laughs> right. of the House. What in the world did he get himself into? Well, I, ironically, he's the Republican Speaker of the State House, uh-huh. and I, ironically – it was it was essentially a kickback scheme around some C4 entities and this big utility up there. And this is the second time in 15 years that this is this has happened. Um, and um, what's odd is I, I did a bunch of work in Ohio, like an 04 to 08, where we we came from 22 seats behind and we picked up state legislature, put Democrats in the majority. We made 20 ads in 06 and 08 about a, a kickback scheme that the FBI investigated that Larry Householder was in the middle of. I've got ads <laughs> that, that the same things we accused them of and beat Republicans on in, in 2004, 6, and 8 is the same deal, only this one was bigger, more brash. And now he's going to finally go to jail. I mean, he 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 avoided jail at the time, and so it's it's kind of like you know, he they <laughs> they missed him the first time, so you know, shame on them. And so he's coming back for another round. And uh, um, so it was. Uh, and and the the biggest thing is is the Democrats lost seats in the state house while this happened. So it was. <laughs> It didn't. It didn't even become an electoral 
Boone. Um, I mean, you know, the whole everything that happened in Ohio statewide. Now, Tim Ryan outperformed Biden uh, pretty strongly in his district. So he's kind of somebody to study, you know, either what he did. He also kind of managed the, the funding, the police argument that they better than most. Um, but everything else in Ohio was wildly worse than expected. I mean, for a while, there was talk of Biden winning and he ends up losing solidly. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's almost one where the numbers were so below expectations. I mean, you can point the finger at the pollsters, but it's one where you really feel like, um, if the Russians intervened anywhere, I mean, it just was, it was so much worse than expected. And uh, mm-hmm. even the places that were better and worse than expected, it was a few points, but I mean, Ohio was, you know, it was just, well, uh, so anyway, I mean, I think it's. Yep. Uh, so, so Trump won Ohio by eight points, which is like yeah. almost a half a million votes, I think in that state. And, I mean, Joe Biden late in the campaign even took a shot at the state, went there personally. Yeah. Why did Donald Trump win there so comfortably? Hmm. Well, um, I think the I think that no one's adequately explained why Trump did as well as he did in this election. So let's let's start with uh-huh. that. This is what political consultants are never supposed to say, and you get kicked out of the club for saying, well. Obviously, nobody knows. I was, <laughs> I did a speaking engagement on election day with one of the top Republican pollsters, and I'm and this guy has you know polls and and works in as many or more markets than I do. He was more optimistic about Biden than even I was, including Ohio. He was predicting Ohio and <laughs> Florida wins for Biden. And uh, so it's not just a Democratic malady. I mean, it's uh, um, and uh, you know, I think the the two the two things that are at least within someone's control and aren't just like some sort of mystical Trump phenomenon is a Trump invested for years. You know, a lot of things about Donald Trump and his team. It's really hard to like sit back and learn a lesson from because he is kind of a one-man campaign. You know, he he wakes up, he spouts off, he tweets some, goes to bed, and watch, and watches everybody run around in circles and react to him. And, and, and he's done that really well. Um, but his team invested tens, if not $100 million in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, digital ads, social media ads, Facebook ads for years in the run-up to try to galvanize, expand their base, and they obviously did. And so that's got to be part of it. This wasn't just a, you know, last couple months of the election effort or put some ads on TV at the end like Biden, you know, tried to do. Um, I mean, they, they, Probably the smartest, most strategic, most understandable thing Trump's team did is they had a long-term strategy in those key states to expand their base. And with all the talk that we had everywhere, every day about the blue wave, there, there there, there wasn't anybody saying, well, what if we do have a blue wave? but there's a red wave that matches it. <laughs> and that's what ah. we had. We, we had dueling waves and, uh, mm. um, and, and the, you know, the modeling people and a lot of other folks, they just didn't, they didn't imagine a, a more cautious scenario. The, you know, the other piece of it is, is I think democratic economic messaging. It's like our kryptonite right now. We'd love to put a policy paper out about, at pay equity and the minimum wage, which are things we all, you know, agree with and want and feel passionately about. But, you know, all these ticking off of policies that have tested aren't as, aren't really matching this guttural emotional connection on the American dream and, and our economy. And, and so we got to, we got to hit people in the head and the gut on the economy. And I think Biden did a better job than Hillary Clinton, but overall, when you have a when you have one of the top most important races in the country, our U.S. Senate campaign, that essentially has either seeded the economy or forgotten about it, 
you just got to wonder what the fuck is going on. What the hell is going on? I mean, you know, what are what are people thinking? Who are running these campaigns? And uh, mm-hmm. um, and they're just not in tune wow. with, you know, they're just not in tune with the American people that we're trying to target. So. Yeah, one more question in the what were the what are they thinking category, and then I'm going to send it uh, to Catherine. But uh, we we know that Mike DeWine uh, pretty much earned you know uh, high praise for his handling yep. of, of the virus, especially early on. We also know now that the governor has earned the ire of Trump and his supporters for daring to say that Biden won the election. Is he got a target on his back, John? Uh, is he going to get primaried? Is, 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 is he in trouble for 2022? I, I think you have to assume he is. I mean, his numbers are probably still solid. The former congressman from near Akron, Rianichi, I think is his name. He's uh-huh. a little bit of a self-funder. I think he's already gearing up to run. There was talk of Jim Jordan running, but he'll probably stay in Congress. I mean, it's there's absolutely going to be uh, a primary. If, I mean, if you look at a guy like uh, Senator uh, Flag out in Arizona or Bob Corker in Tennessee, th- those guys didn't leave the United States Senate because, you know, they found a lobbying job they wanted better or gotten too old. I mean, they were pretty youthful, <laughs> energetic, well-regarded senators with the future. They got sideways with Trump. And they just lost ground. I mean, the polling I saw in Tennessee for Bob Corker, and 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 this this is what they're all in fear of um, right now. I mean, you see Governor Lee in Tennessee; he won't. We're, we're top in the nation in COVID, but he won't say anything about a mask mandate. They all live in fear of getting corkered, or uh, isn't that the guy's name in, in uh, Arizona? Flag. Flake. Yeah, Flake. Yeah, Flake. Flake. Yeah, Flake. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Flake. I'm thinking Flagstaff. And, uh, All right. But, yeah. So well, I mean, John, you, you started in on Tennessee, so I'm going to send it to Catherine to talk to you about that state. Awesome. Catherine. Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight. It's nice to have you back, hey, Catherine. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we we uh, you know we're always looking at Tennessee because you're our neighbor, and we like to see what's going on there. <laughs> but it seems that it's getting more and more um it's just getting redder and redder deeper and deeper red and so what what's the the what's your forecast for Tennessee coming <laughs> Is your up for, your forecast for uh, deep red light light pink or purple you know what is your <laughs> forecast <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> What's your mood ring? What's my mood ring telling me about Tennessee? <laughs> well, I, I think I think there's two things. I mean, you can't debate that it's been a tough run, especially when somebody like Phil Bredesen, who won every single county the last time he ran, and he ran in 2006, um, uh, you know, gets gets beat by Marsha Blackburn. I mean, you know, probably one of the lightest weights, dumbest people in politics right now. I mean, kind of Tennessee's Sarah Palin. Um, and, and got beat when his positive rating was higher than hers. His, you know, he was like 55 to 40, and she was about 45 to 55, and she got he got thumped. I mean, so that's a pretty that's a that's a pretty big indictment. I mean, I think part of the problem also at the legislative level, the congressional level, is we're not even competing in some of these races. And so I think longer term, we've got to build out you know, congressional and state legislative campaigns at the, uh, uh, at the local level. And then we probably need, you know, one of these major Republicans to make a major error, have a bigger, big scandal. And, and, you know, the, you know, the, there, there are going to be some fascinating challenges on the right between the Trump tea party, right. And some establishment Republicans. And so, um, I think that may create some opportunities for Democrats as well. So um, it is, it's definitely sunk further than I would have, would have imagined this fast. And, uh, um, you know, I've, I've got some hope, but you know, it's like, it's like with sports, you know, we're always, we're always better if the other team turns the ball over a couple of times on us. So I think we've got to, 
do well ourselves, and we probably need a few turnovers, a.k.a. scandals, and, and maybe we could be back in business. Yeah, I think that's um, a really key thing is that um, we have to build the party and build and be prepared for that um, for that error, right? Yeah. We can't just run anybody. We need to prepare and have good candidates running so that even if it happens in the middle of a campaign, we have a candidate that's ready. Um, I mean, I think we had a good example or a poor example of that in Georgia this year with Marjorie Green, right? We had a Democrat mm-hmm. running against her who had no experience running a campaign mm-hmm. and then ended up dropping out. You know, if we had had a stronger candidate, no, I'm not trying to criticize Kevin. Um, he he was, you know, willing to run and that's good, even though he eventually dropped out. But if we had had a really strong candidate, we might've been able to push back against, you know, crazy. But when you don't have a good candidate running, you're, you're, you walk, you walk into it, not prepared. So I think that's something that we hopefully will all be learning is we have to build that bench and get people elected to our local and state legislatures and get, you know, get a um, bench built so that we have people that can run and be qualified to run. So well, I'm glad well, to hear that and, we're all – go ahead. And, and I think one thing that will be interesting um, is the is, is also how the population growth is going. I mean, the Hispanic population is big. It's, it's and growing super fast, but it's pretty first generation. So it's going to take some time for that to be a voting block. And then the Nashville market, as Atlanta's known for years and years, is just exploding. And so that growth is going to be interesting. I mean, some of that is more rural, probably more conservative people moving to the center of the state. Some of it's corporate executives from around the country of various ideologies. But we've, at a couple of the places, some of the top in migration is like from Portland and from Brooklyn. And, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of wealth in Nashville that's not Republican wealth. And a lot of the economic growth is pretty progressive people. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of money and success that could help fund the right sort of progressive and democratic efforts. I don't know that we've perfectly tapped into it yet, but that, that's going to be one thing that's, that's you know, fascinating over the next 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I think we, and here in Georgia, you know, we built a, um, one of these state tables. We have a C3 and a C4 table. So we have a bunch mm-hmm. of progressive organizations that work together. And they're doing that in Alabama now. Has Tennessee inv- – do you guys have one? Do you know? There, there's, a, there's a version of it. Um, it's not uh, – that is uh, – that has been peddling and was – was a little bit involved in the Bredesen race. I don't, I don't know that it's hit its stride like some of the other tables, but, yeah, I was familiar yeah, with it. Yeah, it takes a while. It takes a while to build yeah. it for everybody to trust yeah. everybody. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's like the, you know, herding cats at the nth degree well, because you've got well, and I've, a lot of people. I've worked with a, a number of the tables in other states, in Ohio and Minnesota and Colorado, and those are states where the environmental and labor groups and teachers' organizations really drive things. I mean, in the South, we're just never going to have the union members where the tables can be driven as much by the labor entities. It's, we're going to need more wealthy individuals or people connected to wealth and companies. I mean, if, if you think about where our governors have always raised money, I mean, it's still been a lot of moderate business money. And so I think that a southeastern table is going to have to be a little different than how they've, you know, done it in Michigan or Colorado or another state that's gone from, you know, red to purple to blue. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. This was really, really great. And I'm going to pass it to David. I know I think he has a couple more questions for you. 
Thanks well, so time's running short, and I think we've moved into a woodworking show, all this table talk. Um, well, <laughs> I, I do want to kind of piggyback a little bit on Tennessee and from what I see. Uh, John, I think you were 100% right about Nashville. It's going to trend like any growing city, and it's probably going to become more progressive. And so it just needs to be, you know, pushed along, but it's going to get there. Memphis is a city where – Probably what, you know, Stacey Abrams did in Georgia where you turn out more Democratic voters because they're there and they're just not turned out to the same degree. Probably a plan like that would do incredible in Memphis. But then you have two other cities. One is a college town, but Knoxville doesn't seem to vote. Maybe the college folks do, but the, the town as a whole doesn't vote like a college town. And if there's a way to get Knoxville to be more Democratic, it would be huge. And then Chattanooga. I mean, I think it still has a Republican mayor a lot of times. And Chattanooga's never Chattanooga's really turned. Look into that yeah. eastern half of the state. What do you do to move mm-hmm. those two cities to be more Democratic like they normally would be in other places? Well, but I think they're trending that way. I mean, Knoxville's had, you know, progressive Democratic mayors. The count the, but the, but Knoxville has been a little bit more of a conservative city. Chattanooga, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they did have Republican mayors, but but recently they've both had Democratic mayors. And so I think those counties and cities are trending the right direction. They're probably, if you compare it to other major metro counties around the country, they're probably a hair less progressive and Democratic. I think the real, I think the real battle though, and 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 you know, sitting in Georgia, this has been the game changer. There is, is I just don't think the suburbs here have been moving that quick. I mean, all the ring counties around Nashville are pretty hard, are pretty tough sledding. And so, I think as people move out of Nashville, as people move in from other states, I think how that evolves is going to be interesting. Like there was a, the where Murfreesboro is in Middle Tennessee State. Um, you know, that used to be pretty democratic and as a, as the suburban growth, it's gotten more Republican this time, it was five or six points more Biden. So I think, I think our suburbs are just a hair more conservative is probably one of our big problems. I mean, we all know suburbs, suburban women, you know, independent white, white women are, are a key target in a lot of these swing races i just think i think our suburbs are just a hair more conservative right now but i think that's going to evolve it just maybe it's it's going to move slower than georgia or north carolina but i think we'll get there yeah and i think knoxville's kind of a key to that like uh knox county the county commissioner is uh the wrestler Kane, Glenn Jacobs, and I've listened to his book, which most of it was about wrestling and his life, and then he got into his politics, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I guess he did get dropped on his head one too many times. <laughs> um, but, you know, and you saw – but he's a libertarian. He's not even really a, a Republican, in it, but he's a libertarian that's more of an economic libertarian. It makes him pretty hardcore, that whole, you know, bathtub government analogy. Well, John, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. I know you're more of the consultant, and you know how to get to your folks, but if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, catch up with you on LinkedIn, if you blog anywhere, just tell our mm-hmm. listeners where they can find you. Sure. Yeah, my, my Twitter is at uh, uh, John Rowley. My last name is R-O-W-L-E-Y, and uh, my company is called Counterpoint Messaging, and uh, – um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, always like to hear from people around the country of, uh, and around the region of what they're up to. And, and, uh, um, so I, it's, uh, as always, it's been good being in the crossfire and getting pinged and ponged between the three of you. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we weren't too tough on you and we want you to continue to enjoy your holiday season, uh, through the new year. Amen. Thanks, team. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Here's to 2021. See ya. Yes. Yes. It's got to be better. Um, (laughs) Well, that was John Riley, one of our favorite political consultants. I mean, we had him on to talk about Ohio and Tennessee, and we got this amazing stat from the state of Maine, of all things. Um, And so – 
Uh, great to have him on. Um, we had had other topics to talk about tonight, but I don't think we could even begin to do them justice. Um, and then something even came out of John's interview I kind of want to talk about, but I don't think we have time for that. So I'll just set up next week. Next week, we're going to have another great consultant, uh, somebody that will be on their show for the second time, Mr. Chuck Rocha. And um, this time, we won't be talking about his book as much. We'll be talking about um, Latino turnout in many states and also the state of Texas because uh, Chuck lives in Texas and probably knows that state best. And so uh, that's on the docket for next week. And then that will be our last show before the Georgia primary. So we're probably going to have to pay heavy attention uh, to that as well. But until then, good night, everybody. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?